Cup of Go for August 11, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Shai Nechmad. Good morning, Shai. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> I was late 15 minutes because my alarm didn't go off. But don't worry. I'm all good. You know what I did this week? What did you do this week? I plunged into an ice bath. What? Yes, I plunged into an ice bath for two minutes. Someone from my work brought a, like a breathing coach. And I was still less hurt by that than but what you had to say about Go 121. Well, Go 121 is out. Yes, that's going to definitely be on the list of our topics for today. Usually we keep this for the end of the episode, but I implore you to stick around to our interview portion. Today we're interviewing Josh Bleeker-Snyder. A lovely person and one of the main contributors to Go and specifically the Go compiler. Just super interesting interview, so stick around. All right, let's jump to the news. Uh, first up, if you're in the UK next week, GoferCon UK is going to be there. I know Miki Tebeka, our first interview ever, is going to be there doing some Go uh, riddles and whatever. So if 16, 17, 18th of August 2023, go to the brewery in the city of London. And our former guest co-host, Adelina, will be there with Women Who Go London, so be sure to check out their booth too. We have a, a non-negligible percentage of Cup O gophers in the GopherCon. That's interesting. That's right. Cool. So go there. Can we talk about Go121? I don't know if we should. <laughs> let's do it. And let's call it the, the proper version number. Go 1.21.0 has been released. Yeah, yeah. Have you tried it yet? The URL says 121. So you won't catch Maya saying 121.0. The truth is in the URL. If they really believed in it, they could have called it 1.21.0 in the URL. I have seen some inconsistent messaging about this mm -hmm. version number. That's true. Have you tried it yet? I have tried understanding all the bullet points. I have not installed it on my local machine, but I have installed it on my work machine. I have installed it on my local machine, and I tried updating uh, the, the main repository I'm working on to go 1.21, and it crashes. I get seg faults. Seg faults. Yeah. That's rough. Which is really hard to debug because I don't get a stack trace with a seg fault. And what's worse, the seg faults are only happening when running GitHub Actions. So I can't even reproduce it. I, I was able to reproduce it sporadically on my local machine, but now I can't get it to reproduce at all locally. So I'm pretty sure it's related to init ordering, which changed in Go 1.21. And uh, some init thing is happening in a weird order and causing the test to crash. Yeah, we actually, you posted your frustrations on our... Uh slack community yeah uh, basically which allows us to vent to like 200 plus people or whatever and um our interviews from last week uh benthos are also fighting uh, problems with uh in an order in go 121 but i think it's for the best because before that it was unspecified so these bugs were like hiding uh, and now it's specific, and you just tossed a bad coin. You know what I mean? I kind of wish the init order was randomized to force people to not rely on it, but that might be too much. <laughs> Some people like to do that with unit test. I always uh, install like random order unit testing. But the best case for init, as far as I'm concerned, is just don't use init. There's a linter called the check no uh, init. And I'm, I feel very vindicated because uh, I know at my previous company, which was a t a totally a go shop, uh, I know that they won't have any issues because <laughs> I was very strict about that specific linter. So obviously, we talked a lot about Go 121 going in, right? If you listen yeah. to our previous episodes one by one, you basically get the release notes 
so we're not going to go over and really go deep into each feature. I do want to highlight the major, you know, interesting stuff in this release in case you haven't listened to the previous episodes or maybe you find it hard to follow. So there's a ton of new features and improvements, all of them, I think, really good. The first one is PGO, Profile Guided Optimization. We discussed this since the beginning of the podcast. It was preview in 120. Now it's generally available. Uh, there's great documentation, and you just get 2 to 7% uh, performance improvements if you build this thing correctly. In large companies where you have horizontally scalable services, this could be huge if you grab the correct uh, profiles from production. Uh, there are a few language changes as well. Finally, min, max, and clear built in. There's a lot of stuff regarding uh, generic functions and you know their type inference. And uh, the loop var footgun is uh, finally removed. Well, experimentally removed. Yeah, experimentally removed. You need to add a variable to do that. If you don't know what the loop var uh, footgun is, don't worry. Now you don't have to worry about it anymore, honestly. There are a few standard library additions. The one that I'm excited about the most, obviously, is log slash slog. We have structured logging. I'm wondering how many companies will have now on their backlog remove GoKit, logger, <laughs> remove Zap, remove Uber. Yeah, we're already using the, the experimental version. Um, we have been for a few months on one of the repositories in the process of migrating on the other. So we'll be as soon as we can get Go 121 to stop crashing, I'll be switching to the official version. If I'm already using, uh, let's say, GoKit slash log, would you recommend that I switch? Um, that's a good question. If you're happy with the way your logging is working, probably not. I've never looked at a Go code base that did logging the right way. So I've always had to refactor logging anyway. Um, so if, if you're going to be doing refactoring, you might as well refactor to the to the new shiny standard. Yeah, it's shiny, but it's in the standard Go library. So somehow already feels like with a, no pun intended, a bit rusty. Like it's been here for a while, right? <laughs> we have improvements for slices, maps, and uh, CMP all around basically like generics and being able to compare stuff. And I think something really, really cool because of PGO, the Go compiler itself is even faster. Mm hmm. I saw the primogen guy on YouTube talking about this release, and he was like, now instead of your Go program compiling in 40 milliseconds, it's going to compile in 36 milliseconds. Uh, and I was like, it was fun to see uh, a Rustation looking at our compiler and, and drooling. I would like to see Go Lang CI Lint recompiled with PGO, because on the code base I'm using, it takes about 15 seconds to run the thing. And every time I save a file, that's a long time to wait. I think, I don't remember how someone from my work hooked it up, but someone from my work hooked it up so it only looks at Git changes or something like that, mm. or files that were recently changed. Uh, like he did something with his, with his file system where you would click save on like he's using Visual Studio Code. It would run Golangsy Island just on that file. But then sort of messed up for him because if he changed signatures and whatever, it didn't file yeah. files next to him. So Golang Island already has some built-in caching, uh, which usually does a pretty good job. But we have one monster package that has thousands of files in it because reasons. And so anytime you change anything that in that package or that depends on that or, or that that package depends on, you wait. Uh, so uh, the compiler is faster uh, due to tuning of garbage collection. Some applications can get forty percent reduction in tail uh, latency. We have new. Uh, if you're collecting traces, it's faster. And there's a new experimental port for WebAssembly. Specifically WASI or WASI. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I would assume it's pronounced GONW. Probably. W-A-Z-I. <laughs> Was-I. Let's, uh, like, it's a philosophical WebAssembly release. So a huge release. We've been waiting for it for a while. We've been talking about it for a while. Thanks, GoTeam, for making it happen. A ton of work went into it behind the scenes. 
And one last bit, actually two little tidbits since we're on the topic of Go121. Somebody over on Hacker News did the effort of comparing release sizes since Go 1.5 and found that Go 121 is the smallest release. Not the smallest diff, not the smallest set of changes, but the smallest release. That is, like if you download the, the Linux AMD 64 tar GZ file, it's smaller than all of the others since Go 1.5, which is kind of interesting. I looked at the numbers and I was surprised uh, just to see it was so small. It's only 63 megabytes. And it peaked around 142 megabytes ago, 1.19, so not too long ago. I'm wondering what's deleted away, uh, but it is a long-term intentional effort. There's an issue you can go read of like seeing how you can reduce go download sizes. People have been working on it actively, and you know they it worked. Yep. It's very small. I'm wondering if it's maybe too small, and so people are going to start downloading it as part of CI instead of like caching it or building it into <laughs> their uh, CI images. Because, you know, it's sort of a law. Instead of being efficient, we'll just use all the resources we have, which is why my phone is so slow, even though it's so strong. But yeah, that's really cool. Also on Go121, Golangsi Island uh, already has 121 support, which is crazy. Less than 24 hours later, it was it was super fast. Uh, really great work, Golangsi Island team. Uh, if you don't know what Golangsi Island is, it is a meta linter, which includes all the linters you need in Probably you just want to have it on for every single project No, without even thinking about it. It should be default. Now that we have Gone W, or more correctly, Gone Go New, you can use a template that already has uh, Golang CI to start your projects. All right, so that's 121. Let's move on to proposals. We had a bunch of activity in the proposal space this last week. We had a bunch of new ones that were accepted. So the first one off the bat, we already talked about it. The untyped zero proposal has been accepted. So I'm quite certain it will be part of Go 1.22 in February because I, I think the implementation is an experimental implementation was probably already done. And clearly the Go team has been thinking about this a while. So I would be surprised if it was delayed beyond that. So yeah, the Untyped Zero is going to make a lot of return statements better, which is nice. And, you know, better code, easier to read, less boilerplate. I think always good. Um, one thing I'm happy to see accepted is add error group with cancel cause. So imagine you have some errors and you want to use some context you just want things to to happen right you want your server to work but then suddenly you get an error back from the from the server from the context right from listen or whatever how do you know what happened uh usually people had to work around it right they had to either pass in another context like variable or include a reason in the return, which was sometimes nil, or hack their own error uh, type, which is fine. It's not super hard to create your own error type, custom error type, but then you have to use it whenever you have an internal context. Uh, and especially if you have, uh, you know, a group of errors, now you have to loop over each one, find your type, try to understand the cause, stuff like that, where it really doesn't make sense, right? Because almost always when I pass a context into something, if it stops, I want to know why. So either I know why because I'm, it's a sec fault or a panic, right? Or you can give me an error. Uh, so now you have context with uh, cancel and you have with cancel cause, and now you can use it with error groups as well. I think this is going to be really good for initialization of servers that have multiple threads. And I expect to see standardized error formats for this cancel uh, cause as well. Like stuff you can propagate and Kubernetes will automatically catch. Like, okay, if the cause was this, then don't restart the pod, just restart the network services or stuff like that, uh, which could be really interesting for, you know, stuff that's already in production. I don't expect 
this to happen. But, you know, if the server is AI based, maybe it can return right? a cancel cause. The service decided to unionize against you. <laughs> it could also happen. So uh, I'm really happy to see it accepted. And I really hope to see it in 122.0. Actually, you don't have to wait that long. What do you mean? It's already available. It was in 121. <laughs> it was closed yesterday. So this is part of golang.org slash x slash sync slash oh. error group. So it's not actually tied to the release cycle. And if you look closely at the issue, not only was it accepted, it was actually merged back in April accidentally. What do you mean? Seems to have landed without a proposal acceptance, but too late to do anything about that now. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. April 1st of all days. That's great. <laughs> but it's still nice to see it there. I, I mean, I didn't know it was there. Apparently, I've been using it for a while and I didn't realize it. So it's great. Well, I don't, I guess uh, it wasn't in my bag of tricks because I haven't learned about it, but it was in the code. I guess it's true what they say. There's only truth in uh, source code. Right? Yeah. So never mind. This is not news, everybody. <laughs> news, <laughs> you can sneak in code into the X packages because no one cares. Gates are open. Come in. <laughs> All right. One last proposal I want to talk about is experimental range. Yeah. So we talked about this uh, two or three weeks ago, I think, with Adelina when she was co-hosting. Yep. Not me. So uh, the proposal is to add um, two new range capabilities, uh, one with integers. So you can just range, you can just say range 10 and you get zero to 10, uh, or you can range over functions, which is a little bit more complicated. I'm not going to explain it again. But the proposal that's been accepted isn't so much to add that, but to add it as an experiment. So presumably Go 1.22 will have an experimental flag you can enable to take advantage of these new range capabilities to try them out. So that's kind of cool. It is. I listened to this part of the podcast when I was in the line in the airport going back home. Mm -hmm. And it was actually super fun because uh, you and Adelina were explaining you know, ranging over functions and ranging over numbers. And you were like, I want to be able to skip and jump, not just plus one and whatever. And I was just seeing the, you know, it's the airport line before the security check. So I just imagined like the security machines ranging over items. I just saw how many places this could be used. And then I realized I'm talking about like airport infrastructure. I assumed that it's written in like COBOL or like ancient <laughs> Egyptian hieroglyphs or something. But I don't know, maybe European airports are actually written in Go. Who knows? Don't know. We'll have to find out. Cool. All right. There are two things we want to mention around the community. Uh, first one is, John, did you ever have to store stuff in a map? Never. <laughs> it's except, easy, right? Except all the time. Yeah, all the time. So you store it in a map, and then you're like, oh, wait, I remember it's not thread safe. And then you grab like sync map or maybe grab a few mutexes and locks from sync and hack it yourself it always i think every single project that got big enough in in especially back-end like networking services where you have to like store client sessions or caches or stuff like that api keys i found myself reaching for like sync map but i wasn't really happy with it interface its performance etc etc now we have a high performance thread safe generic concurrent hash map implementation which is about handling concurrent access efficiently it has a really really nice interface i have to say it's generic so you have like you create a map and you create int to string or stuff like that so looks really really good it has a bunch of benchmark and was released 19 hours ago as of this recording which means probably you know yesterday you heard it here first folks uh yep concurrent swiss map concurrent swiss map on uh, github uh, i gave it a star it looks good looks solid has a has a lot of coverage 100 percent coverage so might be my next default concurrent map awesome what else did we want to mention around the community well you've talked uh we well we both talked about golang ci lint uh today and we saw this post about one particular linter and, and sort of imploring you to use it 
It's the SQL close check linter. It's one I use anytime I'm on a project that uses SQL. It basically just makes sure that you close your rows before you exit the function. Because if you don't, you end up leaving these open database connections just hanging around, waiting for timeouts and, and other nasty things, maybe even some deadlocks in some cases. So it's a nice short blog post. You know, you can read it in just about two minutes, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it kind of makes the case for SQL close check. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, the title is a linter I really recommend you use if you're doing SQL and Go. Yeah, and you know, forgetting to close the DB connection is something you usually won't do. But forgetting to close the rows, no chance I remember that. No chance in hell. I think about it as like just a value, but it's not just a value. It's a handle to a resource. Yeah, kind of like closing the body on an HTTP request, which is also easily forgotten. And there's a linter for that too. Yeah, so basically go read it because the only reason we recommend reading it instead of just telling you the linter like go install go skill check because this is a part of a series that looks uh, pretty good by i'm gonna try it please forgive me piotr Jastrebeski, maybe i couldn't do better has a three post series and i think there's a chance it might go uh, longer so worth following uh piotr all about like sql access uh, in your go code cool uh, so that wraps it up for the news for this week. So much stuff to cover. We pushed several things to the backlog. We'll try to get to the next week, if it's a slow week. Yeah, yeah. Everybody take a chill pill after the release. and <laughs> Don't release lo- anything for a week. We need to catch up. Yeah, we also want to moan. We want to like complain about stuff. We don't have time because everything's so good. <laughs> so stick around after the ad break to hear our interview with Josh Bleeker-Snyder. Have a nice week, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to our ad break. What's that coffee cup you're drinking out of there, Shai? <laughs> it's not a beautiful cup of go one. You'll get the shameful screenshot. But I, I woke up so early this morning, I just grabbed the first one out of my cupboard. It's actually one that I, I cherish greatly. It's one I had since I was a tiny kid. Oh. Uh, it's a Hermione Granger one. Oh, who's the nice. best uh, Gryffindor of them all. Well, I think you should go to cupofgo.dev and click on the store button and get a Brewster bug maybe two or three since it seems like you're not always finding the, the one you need mm-hmm. if you want to also feel a very elitist like <laughs> john can here uh with uh stickers mugs or a wireless charger uh featuring our beautiful mascot brewster you know with it looking at you from the back of your laptop or you know just going on a conference call and holding up the cup and being, people being like oh my god look at that cool guy what a cool cup store.kapago.dev is where you can find it. I've actually hopped on a call at work and just told someone about my podcast while drinking from the cup. And then later I realized it, it was so perfectly like lined up and whatever. And then they got one, which was very nice, nice of them. Super. Uh, so uh, if you want to support the show and get some cool swag, you can go there. Um, we have some programming notes for you. Anyone who has kids know now is the critical time of summer vacation. Kids don't have their kindergartens or schools or I know how old your kids are, grad school or whatever. So Jonathan and I discussed and we're taking some time off. going to take the end of summer uh, off the podcast because we take vacations off work as well. We probably won't be as sharp on what's happening in Go and we'll be back in September. Next episode should be September 1st. Maybe a long one. We probably have some catching up to do. Yeah, we might do a, we might do an extra long one, uh, but we'll miss you all. It's going to be three weeks without Cup of Go. I hope you all can manage it. If you want to find support, you can find us at Cup O Go on the Gopher Slack. That is hashtag Cup-O-Go Kebab Case on the Gopher Slack. There's going to be an interesting thread there uh, where we want to ask you, who do you want 
to hear interview on the podcast. So we can have three weeks of intense discussions about that until we come back. And just because we're not recording the episode doesn't mean we won't be recording interviews. We may have an interview or two recorded during that break to dive in uh, in September. But we'd love to hear from you. Who in the Go community would you like to hear from? Let us know. And we'll miss you. And we'll come back on, uh, on September. Also on our Slack, we have a new emoji. Yay! If you type uh, colon cup of Go, you get Brewster. Thanks, admins, for making that happen. We appreciate your work on the Go for Slack. It's one of the best Slack communities I'm in. Great. Well, stick around for our interview with uh, Josh Bleeker Snyder. Uh, it was. Can, can I say this? It was one of my favorite interviews uh, that we've done so far. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed all of them, so I don't want to like play favorites with our guests. But it was a it was a really fun interview. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed participating. Yeah, we're definitely going to make an effort to have Josh back on the show again. Thanks, Josh. Have a nice week, everyone. Until September. Till September. My heart will go on. So, Jonathan, remember when, uh, almost uh, eight months ago, when we started this uh, podcast, you told me that you were worried we're not going to have enough to talk about. Yeah. So I just want to put that thought uh, in the back of your mind and tell our listeners that we have the beautiful josh snyder here on the uh, on the interview as you know if you stayed up to this part of the episode say hi josh hello i'm exceedingly beautiful as they can see um and you can only hear yeah it's uh we all have voice uh faces for uh, radio and, and uh you know it's so funny thinking about we wouldn't have stuff to talk about we literally spend the last like 15 minutes uh trying to find and cut and see what we will and won't discuss and uh, maybe yeah. doing a three-parter, maybe we'll come on again and again. <laughs> so we have a ton to talk about with you, Josh, today. Yeah. Um, I'm very excited. Why don't you start with uh, telling the people who you are, in case they don't know you. Uh, my name is Josh Bleeker Snyder, and I have spent um, an inordinate amount of my life um, hacking on the Go compiler, toolchain, runtime, um, and being generally involved in the project. I started using Go around Go 1.2, started contributing actively around Go 1.4, and sort of retired a, a couple of cycles ago. Um, so I've been had my fingers in a lot of pies. Um, all of the code you see is, is muddy with my paw prints. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, you're like the eighth top contributor to go something like that right definitely top 10 yeah by the uh the world's most important metric which is commits yes i thought lines of code was the most important metric no witty, witty bond moths in the comments is the most important ah right okay lines of code deleted matthew dembski is is the i think he's the only one in the like top 20 who has deleted more lines than he has added which i, I can only aspire to we salute you um so we have a ton to talk about and we actually want to get started with some stuff that's going on right now. Jonathan, you had some proposals on your radar that you wanted to take a deeper dive into. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, so so we, we've we've been watching this one on the show for a while. The uh, It was a discussion. Now it's an official proposal to change the Math Rand API, which is interesting. And I think we should talk about that. But I think the most interesting aspect is that we're going to have potentially, likely, the first V2 in our standard library, which may open up sort of the floodgates to do a whole bunch of new things. Maybe we'll have new JSON marshallers and new who knows what else. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Josh. Uh, I don't know if you want to tackle the API changes first and just sort of get that out of the way. And then we can talk about what this V2 might bring. I mean, floodgates go style which means a like steady trickle right yeah uh, <laughs> goes temperamentally a very very slow and careful language i have to say lately 
with the number of proposals, I mean, Russ, Russ has been just, I think he's just been sitting there writing proposals and doing nothing else for the last three months or something. And if you look at the number of proposals, some substantial proposals that have come out lately. But yeah, let's talk about the API changes and what you think about that. This is Russ's style. Russ thinks slowly and carefully and deeply for a long time. And then when the rest of the world finally sees it, we're generally blown away by it. So this flood of, of uh, proposals is probably the consequence of like three or four years of work that has been invisible to us. Okay, API changes. Who cares about uh, MathRand and why would we even want to bother? There are, I mean, broadly speaking, probably two categories of people who use MathRand. People who just want some random numbers. And, you know, it's for something like doing some jitter on back off when you're making an API request. It's not really critical. You just kind of want a random number. And then there are people who really want a lot of randomness. Maybe they're doing a simulation and they are going to be generating, you know, millions of random numbers as quickly as they can to use them for something very deep. There's actually a third category of people who care about random numbers, which are cryptographers, but um, that is not MathRand. Do not use MathRand for cryptography. So the people who just kind of want an occasional random number, MathRand is fine. For people who are leaning on it more heavily, MathRand has some sort of serious shortcomings. So if you think about MathRand as a package, at the core of it is a pseudo-random number generator. And the task of a PRNG is to give you a good steady stream of random bytes. And that's kind of it. And then a lot of the rest of MathRand is about taking a stream of bytes and turning it into something that's useful, like an integer or an integer between 0 and 17, or a way to shuffle a slice, or a float. And each of these translation routines, um, you have to think pretty carefully about the domain to make sure you get the translation right. Like, what does it mean to randomly sample a float? Does it mean that um, you have every equal probability to have any given bit pattern? Maybe not, because floats are unevenly distributed. What does it mean um, to randomly select between 0 and 17. You need to make sure that you don't overweight small numbers. If you act, if you just do, you know, big number mod 17, there you'll accidentally get too many zeros. So a lot of the other half of MathRand is doing this translation. And the last half of MathRand, I'm very good at, at uh, the math, less at the RAND part. The last half of MathRand is concurrency. And you might wonder why MathRand is in the business of concurrency at all, and you would be right to wonder that. Okay, so old MathRand used a relatively old PRNG. It has one great attribute, which is its state is massive. So it can generate lots and lots and lots of different random numbers over time, but it's slow, and it doesn't have great statistical probability uh, distribution probabilities. Um, and there's been a lot of work on random number generators over time, and there's great ones now. It's a funny anecdote, because that PRNG was too slow for me on a project like seven years ago. Oh my God, it's been seven years. And we had to just go with like a hardware solution for that uh, project because we're like trying to get UIDs and we're like, why is it so slow? And we're like, it's actually Go. We don't believe it, but yeah. we profiled it and it was actually that. So we had to yeah. find a different solution back then. It's very big and slow. There's much better ones now. XOR Hero, um, PCG. And so um, part of the goal is to upgrade to a better one. And then part of the other goal is to not get trapped with this better one when there are much better ones 10 years from now. Ooh, that's smart. Yeah. And part of getting trapped and part of the whole reason that there's potentially a need for V2 is that one of the Go team takes um, uh, backwards compatibility very seriously. So seriously that they're like, we can't change randomly generated numbers. We can't change the randomness. If we change the randomness, it will break backwards compatibility because there are totally people who write tests that see the random number generator and then use it for something and then check the output. And all those tests will break and everyone will be miserable. Or if there's a free cell version uh, that uses the Go RNG, like it did back on Win32, and I could put game number one and it's always the same game. 
<laughs> and then you can blow away your children by how good you are at it. Right. <laughs> I love doing sleight of hand tricks with three-year-olds because it makes me feel like an absolute magician. Anyway, so part of the math RAND v2 is instead of having a new RAND source, you're actually going to have named specific RAND sources. So you're going to be like, I'm going to get a new PCG thing, and that will be stable forever. But now when there's a new and better one, we can also um, add the new and better one instead of having this single unified way to get a random number stream. And then all of these translators are going to get overhauls. So for example, taking a, a random integer from 0 to 17, um, there's a much better algorithm for that invented since math rand was created by a guy named Dan Lemire. Um, we actually use it in rand shuffle um, because it's much faster, but we don't use it other places because we couldn't because of backwards compatibility. Right. Yeah, it's a 40% savings on int 31 and 75% savings on int 63. That's major. That's not like a 5% thing. The suspense is killing me. Yeah, yeah. Th that was well-timed. So one thing you mentioned is in the proposal, you're going to have to name the algorithm. Now, the magic here was insane. You just prattling off, uh, you know, algorithms off the top of your head. But you did mention that they are better. Is it like no trade-off better? They are just faster and more random and take less resources? Full stop better. So is there a way for me in the V2 to go latest? Just give me latest? Yeah, so a lot of the V2 math rand is going to have a like, I don't really care, just give me something. With the caveat that something might change over time. If you want something stable, you better pick a specific thing. You better seed it. You better like set up all the things for reproducibility. Um, and this actually shows up in concurrency as well. Now let's talk about the two-letter elephant in the room, right? This is not called math rand. This is called math rand v2 and hence the standard library has no standards anymore it is versioned <laughs> it is does not only exist in space it only exists it also exists in time i mean go is always playing four-dimensional chess now we can have a four-dimensional standard library <laughs> how do you feel about it i'm really excited because one of the hard parts about bootstrapping a brand new language is you kind of don't know how to use the language at the moment when you are writing the single most important body of code, namely the standard library. And you can see that the way that the Go team and the Go community thinks about the right way to structure APIs and write Go code has evolved over time as we learn what this weird thing that got created was. And a lot of the core and super, super important parts of standard library were written in an era we didn't know what we were doing. So this is an opportunity to fix parts of the standard library that uh, impact all of our day-to-day -day lives constantly. So this is a toe in the water. It's a backwaters. It's not going to really, you know, destroy anybody's life by messing with it. Mostly people will get excited. And so now we can start to think about like, okay, net HTTP, text template, HTML template, encoding JSON, these really, really central ones, um, we have an opportunity. And for all of these things, the thinking about what V2 should be and the designing of it, even down to writing code, has been happening a long time. There's an experimental... Um, encoding JSON that is like, I shouldn't say this, they'll be angry at me, but it's pretty mature. Like, go use it. It's better. Mm -hmm. There's been an open issue by um, Brad Fitzpatrick about what do you want out of net HTTP v2 um, that's been around for years with tons of ideas in it. Um, and so like the thought process um, and getting ready for it has been happening a long time. Let me guess, what you want out of net HTTP v2 is actually just all the features of gRPC. No, I'm just <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, you talk about the benefits and, and yeah, I get that. But what about the, you know, one of the great things about Go is a very gentle learning curve, simple code. It's easy to read. What you read actually runs on the compiler. There's no like, you know, bullshit interpreter between you and the, and the, and the metal. This is sort of not that philosophy, right? There will be two ways to do things. There's MathRant and there's MathRant V2. 
Yeah. And more than that, actually, a thing that I think is underappreciated is the documentation isn't just on, you know, package.go.dev. The documentation is scattered over the entire internet in Stack Overflow requests, et cetera. And like one of the really frustrating things about writing Swift, you're like, how do I do X in Swift? And they're like, well, with Swift 2, you do this. And with Swift 3, you do this. And Swift 4, you do this. And Swift 5, you do this. And I'm like, ah, I just want to know how to do it. And like, I'm sure that the Swift team wishes they could go and delete everything that has the word Swift 2 in it in the entire internet, but they don't have the ability to. And like Go will now face that problem where people are going to have to answer how do you do this with V1 and how do you do this with V2? What do you do about that? Well, it's a really hard problem, the same way that um, backwards compatibility is a really hard problem in general, where you're like, I really don't want to break code, um, and yet we have to evolve. Um, and so the answer is the standard Go answer. You do it incredibly slowly, incredibly carefully, and incredibly conservatively. Like, let's keep as much of the baggage that we don't like around. We are not going to completely redesign these things. The differences are probably going to be on the margins, around problematic behavior. And I strongly suspect, knowing the um, personalities and, and philosophies of people involved, that for the most part, the same code will work across V1 and V2. I wonder, you mentioned the, the documentation is scattered all over the internet. Jonathan, you did a playing around with uh, Go and ChatGPT a while back, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder how long it will take for that <laughs> experiment to ChatGPT mm. please write thing that shuffles an array. How long it'll take? At this it, rate, we'll need GPT six, I think, to be trained on whatever documentation version has uh, math. It's and GPT four <laughs> slash V two. We're gonna. How have long will it be before ChatGPT doesn't give me junk code to begin with? Like it, it always does things the hard way. Uh, I've been waiting on myself for ten years for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you want to follow the proposal, it's going on right now, and it's very interesting. Uh, there was a discussion, and as Josh, as you mentioned, the it's very well written. It's not like half-baked. It's a very, very strong proposal like, handed in by Russ. Only opened like five days ago as, as we're recording this. So go contribute. If you have anything to, to say, if you have any interesting ideas, if you have any interesting questions, go ask them. We're going to put the link in the show notes. Random aside, since this is a good place where we can cut audio if this is boring, I think it's going to be a really long time before ChatGPT6 upgrades, uh, because one of the troubles with training ChatGPT is if you train a neural network on its own output, um, you get the Gaussian collapse, um, you lose information, and everyone is frantically trying to hoover up all of the guaranteed human-created content now. And so all the human-created content that comes out after now is actually going to take a lot longer to get incorporated into the corpus. Um, and so ChatGPT is going to be stuck in 2020 as the rest of us are um, for a long time. <laughs> so my my thought process is it's going to cost, you know, Reddit is now gated behind uh, money. Stack Overflow is going to do the same really soon. They already have a lot of anti-scraping behavior uh, implemented in the system. I think it's going to be in within huge profit margins for, let's say, Microsoft to hire, you know, for example, you to train the corpus, just get the questions, sit all day long, write the answers, write some code, make it idiomatic, and, and put that like high-quality training data into the system, which is how we did tons of AI training to begin with, like human tagging and ground truth and, and paid people doing that stuff. The fact that it rose up exactly when, you know, the interest rate was zero and every single API was for free... It's, not an accident. It's not an accident. I don't think it's sustainable. It makes sense that people should get paid for human-created content that's useful for other humans. Yep. When I was doing computer vision, I spent so many, so many days staring at screens of digits um, with a customized UI I built for myself. So I could be like, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. And it was far and away the most effective thing I did uh, beyond writing code. Have you ever read The Bitter Lesson? The Bitter, bitter Lesson. lesson. No. 
It's a two-pager about machine learning, and uh, it is absolutely worth your time to read. I won't recap it for you because it's only two pages. Go read it. All right. We'll put that in the show notes, too. I found it already. Wow. It fits on my laptop screen. I will read it today. (laughs) I'm really interested, Josh, moving from current events to more of your journey through Go. You mentioned your, you know, obviously your contribution to the Go ecosystem is huge. And you mentioned you started hacking on Go quite a long while ago. When was that exactly? Oh, I don't even want to say what year it was. Um, I'm, I'm very old. But what happened was I went on a, a run with a friend of a friend. Uh, the friend of the friend turned out to be Brad Fitzpatrick. Um, and he spent like the whole run chewing my ear off about how there was this great new programming language and how he liked programming again. So I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. I will use that for this upcoming project. I had no justification for using it other than like some guy on a run told me it was cool. And it was uh, some embedded software uh, running on an old um, tiny ARM chip which it turns out was like kind of barely supported by the Go toolchain at that point. And I hit all sorts of really fun bugs, which is part of what sucked me into uh, to, to hacking on it because um, it was intriguing. Um, so it was a pure accident. Uh, we used Go for this very low level stuff. It was really fun. And then I got pretty deeply distracted by it. And it was really fun. It's really good brain food. Brain food is brain food, but it's not food food. And I'm here to ask, you know, as someone who's still, I would uh, consider myself pretty new to the industry. You know, staying on a single project, even one such as big as Go, for such a long time, I don't want to say passion because it's such an overused word and it, it doesn't mean anything. But what kept you motivated to continue contributing to Go? Was it just that it's fun or is there something... You know, I do fun stuff. I like video games, but I don't play the same video game months and months on it. But, you know, I can give you an example. I play chess and I've played chess since I was like six years old. There hasn't been a week where I haven't played a game. I'm not good, by the way, but uh, <laughs> I've been trying. What kept you back? What kept you coming back to the proposals, to the pull request, to the compiler, to the ungrateful you know, work of open source? That's a great question. Well, first of all, if you look back through my contribution history, you'll see it's very spiky. So I took lots of breaks. Um, I mean, there's a broad question, like what brings open source contributors back in general? Why would you contribute your unpaid labor? Usually, in my experience, what brings somebody in the door the first time is either they have a bug they really passionately want to see fixed or they're, they're interested and they want to learn something. What keeps people coming back is either that they're learning something or more likely the other people involved. So I found, I, I don't have a formal computer science um, background. My first job as an engineer, I shifted from um, customer service to engineering. Um, and I figured things out on the job. And so for me, I actually had a lot to learn to go from approximately knowledge of how programming languages worked to the guts of a, a compiler and a runtime. But a lot of it was that I just genuinely really liked the people and they were supportive and helpful, most of them. And uh, that's what keeps people is the community. So I understand you mostly spent your uh, Go community time not on Reddit, but on, uh, on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. You know, you say... I'm not sure how to put it without uh, really like sounding like I'm sucking up, but say you don't have a formal, uh, you know, computer science education and what kept you around was the people, but you're not like, uh, you're not improving the documentation. You're like, you're the compiler, you know what I mean? This is not a yeah. minor role you're taking now and then with friends or or actually is it? It is, yeah. And also, I mean, I actually care a lot about the documentation and um, the issues like so most of my favorite engineers come from non-computer science backgrounds like off the top of my head a historian 
a physicist and a doctor. And what's lovely about people with um, these is they have different perspectives, um, but they also have the sort of soft skills that I crave in the people around me. They have judgment. They can write clearly. They think not about how do I accomplish my task, but what is the right task to accomplish? And oftentimes that informs how you're going to accomplish it. And so, yeah, if you want someone to bang out a bunch of code, I might, I might not be your top choice, but if you want something to, to get the job done, I'm going to look to people who with a, with a well-rounded um, education and who care about communication and their peers a lot more. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a more technical question. Uh, you've worked on the compiler, which I think is something that's scary to a lot of people myself included not in the sense that like i'm afraid to touch it but in the sense that like when i try to look at the compiler i was recently hacking on uh, with go analyze trying to build a linter you know a toy linter and kind of you know ran into some places like for simple things i was i was doing okay but when it comes to like how do i traverse the the ast and figure out where a type is used and things like this you know there's just like whole dimensions of problem space that i'm not familiar with what advice can you offer to anybody who's interested in getting involved in understanding compilers and let's, let's just leave it broad like that it could be the go compiler but uh what advice can you offer to somebody who's who wants to do the journey you did or something similar well interestingly the go compiler is a much less easy place to contribute now than it was when i started i um, sure. even though when i started it was written in c and part of the reason is it's mature and with maturity comes complexity so a good place to start um there are actually a number of compilers out there that are designed specifically to be readable and simple and hackable But supposing you really are interested in the Go compiler, find one corner of it and tinker with that corner. Like, for example, there are a bunch of SSA rewrite rules where you have um, some bit of your code that does something um, and it gets in this SSA structure. And I won't go into what it is um, because I'll bore all of your listeners, but three. Uh, And there are rewrites. They're like, hey, let's let's put this in a different form. This other form is going to be more optimal. And these you can sort of stare at and you can kind of guess what it does. And um, there's a nice UI that, um, I mean, by nice, I mean nice by compiler standards, nice UI that I built for it because I was staring at a lot of these things. And it's something that you can tie directly to code that you can see, the code that gets executed, and you can sort of fiddle with it. Um, And at that point, what you mostly need is an incredible amount of patience. So like when you're working on code and you're trying to find a bug that's a subtle bug, you need lots of patience. Um, You just have to anticipate like with working on something like a compiler or runtime, you need about like anywhere from three to 10x the same amount of patience. Beyond that, it's finding a toehold and iterating. And also there are a bunch of folks in the Gopher Slack, in the hashtag compilers and hash performance channels that know a lot about this stuff and are usually pretty friendly. Cool. Yeah, I, I really think that the there are people is, is a thing. Instead of trying to find an interesting spot yourself, trying to find someone who's looking at interesting spots and saying, hey, you want help? It's been, obviously I haven't worked on the Go compiler, uh, although I might. This has been, uh, raise my up. I'd help you, Shai. <laughs> I'm not sure you want me as a... I think you should try to get a reference from John then after after we... <laughs> I haven't coded with you, Shai. I don't know anything about your coding ability. <laughs> I'll offer on the air so I sound very generous and then later I'll just not show up. Don't worry, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna, I'm going to meet you. What was that uh, Happy Gilmore thing on the 9th hole at 9 p.m.? <laughs> exactly. I'll meet you at Null Island. It's going to be great. But when I was learning, you know, I'm trying to think on almost any subject that I learned, someone either pulled me into it or pushed me into it yeah which is i think two very different ways to go about it either either like your team lead or your boss or in my case you know my previous commanders in the army were like you got to do this you got to do this you, you have to learn this stuff by this date um which is uh 
you know, a very pushy approach to go about it. Are, are you asking us like to give you an ultimatum? You have to learn how to hack on the compiler by a certain date or you're, you're no longer co-host? Ooh, that would be <laughs> interesting. You know what? I'll hack on the compiler when you wrote the fastest. How about that? I did today. Oh, my God. And I have a live stream recording to prove it. Okay, okay. I should have said that it's a deal before I told you I'd already done it. <laughs> but there was actually a really useful nugget of career advice for folks who are earlier in their careers here. Um, mm -hmm. Like Mr. Roger says, look for the helpers. Find the people in your team who love mentorship and lean on them. And take the time to learn things. Like your job isn't just to like bang out code and do the things you're told. Your job is also to progress in your career. Like your company would be delighted to hire somebody who is you but more senior. And they can get that by investing in you. And so a lot of more junior folks feel like they're taking advantage of the company by taking time to learn things more deeply. Like don't. That's critical. Um, and lean on your peers, at least the ones who are happy to do it. You'll find out who they are really quickly. I love that. Yeah, that's great, great advice. Um, one other thing I want to note about your sort of journey within Go um, is the community aspect more at large. Do you feel like, you know, being where you are and doing all these contributions, you have to like play the, when you say something, it represents the Go team, uh, even though, you know, your name is not Rob Pike. And I've never been a member of the Go team and I'm not yeah. part of Google. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely external to them. No, I don't feel that I speak for Go. I never feel that I have. My opinions are, are very clearly my own. And, and I assume that for everybody, including Russ Cox, like if Russ Cox, you know, has a few too many beers, it's hard to imagine. If he has a few too many beers and he says some absolutely bonkers things about Go, I'm going to be like, yep, that was Russ Cox with beer. Like, that's not, that's not Go. And in terms of like, you know, community at large, as much as we talk about community at large, like fundamentally Dunbar's number is a thing. Fundamentally, we're all part of tiny communities. Um, and the part of the Go world that I touch um, is really small. And like, it sounds cool to be like, oh, yeah, I hacked on the standard library, but it's no more important than people who work on any of the myriad of critical Go infrastructure projects all over. Cool. I wouldn't think about, you know, having uh, like the limit of how many people you can think about in a community as large as Go, but I guess it, it does exist. Like, tons of people run your code and they wouldn't even. Like, they don't even know you. They don't have any idea. If they have some idea, then something has gone badly wrong. And yeah, I'm in trouble. Yeah. If everybody's running Git blame right now on the compiler, like, Josh. <laughs> so, uh, Josh, is there anything you want to plug or promote? Or what should our listeners know? You know, you get free space in their minds now. Okay, I'm going to plug two things. One that's actually relevant to Go users, um, which is uh, a tiny project I wrote called T-Struct. Um, and for those of you with this problem, you'll be really excited. It's very difficult to pass values around from one template to another with HTML template um, and text template. Um, and this lets you approximate writing struct literals inside templates. So if you have ever felt this pain, go play with it. Um, it might be the solution to your prayers. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't waste your time. Thing number two, um, which is the thing that I'm really excited about, um, but is only tangentially relevant to Go users, is a project called Cursorless. So Shai, you, you mentioned some number of episodes ago that the army took away your mouse for a while yep so what would you do if they also took away your keyboard i guess uh go learn how to drive a tank <laughs> <laughs> don't you use a keyboard to drive a modern tank anyway uh not the ones my dad uh used to drive story <laughs> Well, if you wanted to stay in the in the comfort and safety of your office and you still wanted to write code um you might pick up cursorless uh so cursorless is a very sort of Vim-inspired um, way to navigate and modify and write code using voice commands. 
Um, and I've struggled with RSI a bunch, and it's really flared up a lot to the point where I was really struggling with hand pain. And I've diverted a bunch of my hand usage off to Cursalus, and it's really glorious, and it's actually really fun. And it's, again, great brain food. And for even folks who are just sort of curious, um, like do a little bit of voice coding along with your hands. Um, there are some things at this point that are drastically faster using voice commands than even a keyboard. I'm going to check yeah. it out because I'm shopping for an ergonomic keyboard right now for wrist pain. If this can help postpone the uh, discomfort of learning to use a, an ergo keyboard, I would love to do that. So I'll try it. Absolutely. Right. And this is, again, slightly off topic, but for our audience, maybe important. If you're with wrist pain in particular, find a wrist guard that immobilizes your wrists, that is, reduces motion, and wear it while you sleep. Um, because a lot of us contort our wrists into weird positions while we sleep, and having your wrists in a neutral position all night long is A, totally not disruptive, you're sleeping, and B, it gives them a really good time to heal. Um, and it's, So this is a really good early prevention technique for wrist pain. I'm going to go buy one right now. Thanks for the advice. And by the way, on the topic of ergonomic keyboards, you need this one. This one's the best one. You don't need any expensive ones. I've done the whole rounds and back. I want to pick your brain about that then. We'll do that offline. All right, no problem. These are two interesting plugs um, just for the more, more mundane stuff. If someone wants to talk to you, where they can reach out? Uh, they can start a podcast about something I love um, <laughs> or they can uh, reach me through a friend. That's one way. Uh, I, I, I try to do my best to stay away from screens. They can probably find me in the Gopher Slack, um, but I, I try to stay quiet and lurk. Okay. They can find a bug in the compiler, I guess. That's one way exactly. to summon you. <laughs> if you need to contact me, just use Git blame. Yeah. Exactly. No, I'm, I was just about to say, I'm sure some of our uh, some of our interviewees would love to say like, yeah, you can still find me on that IRC channel. There's still there's a blinking <laughs> cursor somewhere. Obviously, you can find me on anything that uses the Gopher protocol. Good luck. Nice. Okay. So on localhost for me. All right. So you you already know since you're a listener of the show, you already know that we ask. Uh, Two standard questions to all of our guests. So this will not be putting you on the spot, which would, would have been great because I'd love to see you think on your feet, but you've had years to think about this. Uh, anyway, the question is, somebody puts a gun to your head. You have to remove a feature from Go. What would it be? I mean, look, if you put a gun to my head, I'll remove functions. Who needs functions? Get rid of them. <laughs> uh, but okay. Um, so, we're, so, so we're back to basic now. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, one of the things that I have learned um, through years of watching the Go programming language is that all parts of a programming language are deeply intertwined um, and interact in really unexpected ways. Um, so this is a really hard problem. I really would like to say I want to get rid of recover, but I know it's not an option. I'd like to get rid of naked returns. Oh, I would love to do that. I love you. And you know, there's actually a really tempting alternative to naked returns, which is kind of fun, which is to get rid of named return parameters. Without named return mm -hmm. parameters, then you couldn't have naked returns. And you wouldn't have this weird like, hey, where is that declared? Oh, it's up in the function signature. Mm -hmm. They're really useful for documentation, which is why we can't get rid of them. But I actually think that's a deeper and more interesting change than getting rid of naked returns. So I think they should be purely documentation as they are yes. when you define an interface. Yes. You know, in an interface declaration, you can put them there, but they're purely documentation. The only and thing not that in scope. Yeah. The only thing that that leaves unaddressed, as far as I'm concerned, is deferred functions that modify return variables. So we need a new mechanism to solve that. Um, that'll be my. That'll be the hill I die on when Go two comes out. A hundred percent. All right. So. What would you add if you had the opportunity? No guns involved this time. What would you like to add to the language? <laughs> but just to just to give a background, you know, we talked so much about your Go background. What other languages you've played around in? Like, what are yeah. what uh, baskets are we trying to pick from? 
the thing that I like a lot but would just wouldn't fit in Go. I love um, Python's list and map comprehensions. Um, uh, there, uh, no, the, no. Let me make the case. All right, good, good. This is great. Cheyenne has something to argue about. So they provide the best part of functional programming, which is they are very concise um, and let you sort of build these things up very clearly um, without the worst part, which is like, what the hell just happened and what what, what does that code do? Um, because you're limited in the amount of complexity that you can pack into one of these things. And so they're a, a way to write something that is functional without getting into into very complicated messes. I've just offended half the audience, probably including Shy. So <laughs> counterpoint, it's in Python. I didn't say that I wanted it to be Python. I was saying this is a thing that I really appreciate from Python is list comprehensions. I don't know. There, there are even features of JavaScript I would enjoy having a go sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, some TypeScript sugar that is that would be lovely. What do I actually want to see? What would actually be a good fit for Go? There are two things I'm going to pick two. All right. One of them is um, a broader array of int types. So I want 256-bit ints, and I want arbitrary-sized ints. Um, one of the interesting things about Go is it was supposed to be very, very portable, right? No more like, oh, this is written for this platform, etc. And yet we have a type int. And what int means varies on what kind of CPU you're running. Mm-hmm. And there's good reasons why this happened. But it's also like, it's really frustrating. It should just be however big an int needs to be. Um, and you shouldn't have to think about overflowing it. And if you want overflow behavior, you should specify the exact width you want. And the other one that I'm very tempted by, it's tiny, I can sneak it in, is I want to be able to write return dot 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 comma error and have yes. all the dot, dot, dot be zeros. Um, yes. This is an old proposal. It's been around forever. It's a very small language change, and I want it so badly. I think after zero is going to go in and people will type like zero, 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 error, or zero, 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 nil, they will just uh, probably push this proposal up again. <laughs> I hope right so. now you have to define all the types, and it seems really hard to replace them with dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Um, but honestly, this is maybe a contrarian take. But if, re- if you return that many values, you need to put them in a data structure because, you know, this is not manageable code, but this is a clean code, old school approach. But if you are going to be um, swapping all those out and putting them into a struct type or some other name type, when you do that, you're going to end up with this giant diff in which you have to change all the return variables. And whoever reviews that is going to have to be like, oh my God, what is going on here? Where's the actual change? Um, and one of my favorite hobby horses is Everyone talks about wanting to write code that is readable. Um, I care a lot about writing diffs that are readable and writing code that lends itself to readable diffs. And one of the keys to readable diffs is to um, have a very precise way to say exactly what you mean without a bunch of other stuff. It's the reason I was excited about the zero proposal, because if you're going to change the type of something, you can write equals equals zero, and you can change the type of what's on the left-hand side, um, and all of this line noise goes away. Yep, totally. True. You also have to master uh, Git rebase, which uh, is a lot of fun. Because if you fucked up, yeah. you know how to cover up after yourself. If you want to reduce diff noise, just just say that all white space has to be replaced with new lines. <laughs> I, I, I wish I wish I could make that face that I made audio somehow, but I think. <laughs> all right, this has been a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah, Josh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show, man. Uh, we really appreciate it. As you all know, uh, Josh can be found on the Gopher Slack, but we... And he may or may not respond. One of the channels he's a member of, and honestly, it's one of the reasons we're talking, is uh, the Cup of Go channel. We're almost 200 people now, and there are some interesting conversations there. Uh, so feel free to join, and you know that uh, Josh will lurk from the shadows. Cool. Thanks a lot, Thanks, man. Josh, again. Uh, Lots of Thanks, fun. everyone, for listening. Thanks for having me. Hope to have you on the show again before too long. Bye, everyone.